0: Hello literature enthusiasts, my name is Ananya and I am a Masters in English Literature grad and in this series I would love to share with you interesting insights into English literary works with a special focus being given to women's writings. I will begin the series by talking about the essay called A Room of One's Own written by Virginia Woolf who was a 20th century English writer and wrote classics such as Mrs. Dalloway and Orlando. This essay is perfect to begin this series as it talks about how women from the 18th and 19th century onwards as democratic traditions began to take root in many Western societies and as the novel form emerged as a new genre started to articulate their experiences and creativity in the form of novels, poems and plays. From the West to the British Raj to other parts of the world Writings by women began to get published from the 19th century onwards and women in England began to make a living off of their published works. Women authors in the English language have come a long way since and have become major players in the literary field, but it all began relatively recently only from the 18th and 19th centuries. Woolf was born in 1882 in London and was a modernist 20th century writer. Though her modernist novels have much to be said in their style, form and content, we will for now talk only about this essay in which she talks about women's writings over the period of centuries and why literature never had women writers till very recently. This essay was read out by Wolfe in two papers form at Oxbridge in October 1928. She begins by saying, what does women's fiction have to do with a room of one's own? Woolf draws a relationship right away between a room, individual freedom, financial freedom and the agency of women. She imagines a life of a woman called Mary Seton, living in the 1800s and who was also Woolf's aunt. She says that women of those times could hardly make 2,000 pounds a year and were not business owners or had any independence. They were dependent on their husbands for survival and were relegated to the domestic sphere only. Perhaps that is why women like Seton, who did not have any money of her own, could not create fellowships or works of art, as she did not have individual means to support her dreams. She could not create for herself a life outside of her husband's home. Wolfe says, that had a lady like Miss Seaton, living in the 1800s, started her own business, or inherited some money, then perhaps she would have engaged in intellectual and artistic pursuits. This explanation seems commonsensical today. Of course, back then, in the 1800s, such agency was denied to women who were made into nothing but domestic goddesses. Financial independence is key to any form of independence, as per Wolf, especially creative freedom. She says artists need and require an independent source of income or patronage and the freedom to create. Wolf also comments on the writings of men on women throughout history. She says that men came to various conclusions for the so-called problem of women, that they have no character or that they are incapable of education. She comes to the conclusion that most men who wrote on women thought of them as mentally, morally, and physically inferior. All these men writers were for some reason angry with women. And Wolf asks, but why were they angry? Because, Wolf says, these were more concerned with their own superiority than the inferiority of women, as it gave them a convoluted sense of confidence in themselves the women function as a mirror to enlarge the sense of self of a man. But when she criticizes that image, it breaks. She says, and I quote, Women have served all these centuries as looking glasses possessing the magic and delicious power of reflecting the figure of man at twice its natural size. If she begins to tell the truth, the figure in the looking glass shrinks. His fitness for life is diminished. How is he to go on giving judgment, civilizing natives, making laws, writing books, dressing up and speechifying at banquets? And end quote. An interesting side note here is how she indirectly draws up a link between being aggressive and violent to what we now term as toxic masculinity, and how women's perception of men challenges this toxic masculinity and this outlook towards the world and their own superiority. In short, how women empowerment breaks a traditional civilizational code often linked with the excesses of violence and conquest. She says, and I quote, they had money and power but only at the cost of harbouring in their breasts the instinct for possession, the rage for acquisition which drives them to desire other people's fields and goods perpetually, to make frontiers and flags, battleships and poison gas, to offer up their own lives and their children's lives. Wolf, in her feminist politics, in a way manages to criticise colonialism and war, which is way ahead of her times. Wolf goes back in time to the period of Elizabethan literature when Shakespeare wrote his timeless works of art. She says that she's puzzled why no woman was capable of writing at this time. Was no woman capable of a poem, a sonnet, or writing a play? Wolf says that she read the history of the time and found that women were largely oppressed during this period. She quotes Professor Trevelyan's book, called History of England, and I quote, The historian goes on, The daughter who refused to marry the gentleman of her parent's choice was liable to be locked up, beaten, and flung about the room without any shock being inflicted on public opinion. Marriage was not an affair of personal affection, but of family avarice, particularly in the chivalrous upper classes, withdrawal often took place while one or both of their parties was in the cradle, and marriage when they were scarcely out of the nurse's charge. Women living in the Elizabethan era, Wolf realized, were relegated strictly into the domestic sphere and forbidden from being anything other than submissive wives. Often they were not even allowed to choose their own husbands. Yet. There are various splendid women characters in Shakespeare's works such as Cleopatra and Lady Macbeth, but they were also nothing but figments of a man's imagination. And Wolf realises she cannot even imagine the true reality of an Elizabethan woman because she has been silenced and deleted from history which has been written by men. The Elizabethan woman, and I quote, never writes her own life and scarcely keeps a diary there are only a handful of her letters in existence. She left no plays or poems by which we can judge her. Wolfe then comes to the crux of her argument. She asks, what if Shakespeare had a sister named Judith, who was equally or more gifted in the art of writing as her brother? Says Wolfe, and I quote, Judith was as adventurous, as imaginative, as agog to see the world as he. That is Shakespeare. But she was not sent to school. She had no chance of learning grammar and logic, let alone of reading Horace and Virgil. She picked up a book now and then, one of her brothers perhaps, and read a few pages. But then her parents came in and told her to mend the stockings or mind the stew and not moon about with books and papers. They would have spoken sharply but kindly, for they were substantial people who knew the conditions of life for a woman and loved their daughter. Indeed, more likely than not, she was the apple of her father's eye. Perhaps she scribbled some pages up in an apple loft on the sly, but she was careful to hide them or set fire to them. Soon, however, before she was out of her teens, she was to be betrothed to the son of a neighbouring wool stapler. She cried out that marriage was hateful to her, and for that she was severely beaten by her father. Then he ceased to scold her. He begged her instead not to hurt him, not to shame him in this matter of her marriage. He would give her a chain of beads or a fine petticoat, he said. And there were tears in his eyes. How could she disobey him? How could she break his heart? The force of her own gift alone drove her to it. She made up a small parcel of her belongings let herself down by a rope one summer's night and took the road to London. She was not seventeen. And, end quote. and so, stifled and unhappy, Judith escapes from home. Wolf says, and I quote, She stood at the stage door. She wanted to act, she said. Men laughed on her face. The manager, a fat, loose-lipped man, guffawed. He bellowed something about poodles dancing and women acting. No woman, he said, could possibly be an actress. She could get no training in her craft. Could she even seek her dinner in a tavern or roam the streets at midnight? Yet her genius was for fiction and lusted to feed abundantly upon the lives of men and women and the study of their ways. At last, for she was very young, oddly like Shakespeare the poet, in her face. the same green eyes and rounded brows. At last, Nick Green, the actor-manager, took pity on her. She found herself with child by that gentleman, and so, who shall measure the heat and violence of the poet's heart, when caught and tangled in a woman's body, killed herself one winter's night, and lies buried at the same crossroads where the omnibuses now stop outside the elephant and castle? It was unthinkable in Shakespeare's time, even when it was a golden age for England, when the country was ruled by a queen, to think that a woman had genius like Shakespeare. And yet, Wolfe says, genius must have existed in the lower classes. But societal pressures and traditions were such that, like Judith, the women of the lower classes got no push at all to train or cultivate it. And this is due to the fact that they were not financially free to do what they liked, unlike other rich noble women may have been. Wolf says, and I quote, Any woman born with a great gift in the 16th century would certainly have gone crazed, shot herself, or ended her days in some lonely cottage outside the village, half-witch, half-wizard, feared and mocked at for it needs little skill. Women in those times, Woolf says, were suppressed due to the importance given to their chastity or sexual purity. This chastity was valued by the patriarchal society as an end in itself and was seen as something to be possessed and controlled by men and to be used for creating a family. Thus, a woman was denied any say or freedom of mobility as that would have broken this patriarchal family structure. And if somehow they had managed to write, women would have used pen names like George Eliot did. Wolfe says, and I quote, it was a relic of the sense of chastity that dictated anonymity to women even so late as the 19th century. Carabell, George Eliot, George Sand, all the victims of inner strife, as their writings prove, sought ineffectively to veil themselves by using the name of a man. So Wolfe says, and I quote, That woman, then, was born with a gift of poetry in the 16th century, was an unhappy woman, a woman at strife, against herself, all the conditions of her life, all her own instincts, were hostile to the state of mind which is needed to set free whatever is in the brain. The added impediments of society, which so restrained each and every facet of their lives, made it impossible for women to compose or write or pursue anything that gave them financial and intellectual independence. Woolf talks about how middle-class women began to write from the 18th century onwards. As war reduced many families to poverty or rendered them without a male guardian, Many women, with some education, began to write to support themselves. One example Wolf gives is of Aphra Ben, an 18th century dramatist who wrote plays to make money after her husband died. Another important reason women began to write was because the novel as a form emerged during this time. Still in its infancy, men had not gotten a hold of this genre, allowing women intellectual and creative freedom to do whatever they liked with this genre. With the emergence of the novel form, we see an emergence of women's literature in English writing. The classics such as Austen's Pride and Prejudice or George Eliot's *Middlemarch*, March or the iconic novels by the Bronte sisters were written during this time. But these women were either from the middle classes or from the lower aristocracy and were educated, even if they did not have much money. They were not lower class women. And these women were forerunners of a tradition that continues to this day and has grown immensely. Back in those days, even if women had to write, they did not necessarily offer a rumor of their own, too. Wolf says, and I quote, women never have an half hour that they can call their own, she was always interrupted. And when they wrote, they wrote in secrecy, Woolf says, and I quote, Jane Austen hid her manuscripts or covered them with a piece of blotting paper. Women were also denied freedom of mobility, which denied them the experience that is required to write novels that were other than domestic affairs. Thus, the novel form becomes an interior form in which women mostly wrote about their domestic lives, as that is what they knew of and had lived through. However, it was not as if they were unaware of this issue. In Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, which was published in 1847, the protagonist, Jane, who works as a governess, also wishes to go beyond the four walls of the mansion she works at and travel. In this epic novel, Eyre writes in first person, and she says, and I quote, Women are supposed to be very calm generally, but women feel just as men feel. They need exercise for their faculties and a field for their efforts as much as their brothers do. They suffer from too rigid a restraint, too absolute a stagnation, precisely as men would suffer, And it is narrow-minded in their more privileged fellow-creatures to say that they ought to confine themselves to making puddings and knitting stockings, to playing on the piano and embroidering bags. It is thoughtless to condemn them or laugh at them if they seek to do more or learn more than custom has pronounced necessary for their sex. And when we come to an episode dedicated to this novel, we will talk about this and how this relates to the character and her development, which is so fascinating and reflective of th- that readers continue to connect with it today. It is Bronte's concealed anger that comes through so brilliantly in the character of Jane Eyre, but that is an exciting episode for another time. Wolfe says, for a woman to write, she must have a room of her own. 500 pounds a year to sustain herself. Not just that, but she also has to have a lock on her door. She says, and I quote, Poetry depends upon intellectual freedom, and women have always been poor, not for 200 years merely, but from the beginning of time. Women have had less intellectual freedom than the sons of Athenian slaves. Woolf says that freedom from the pressures of domesticity is one way of achieving goals of becoming a writer, but most importantly, so is economic freedom and the freedom of mobility. Having a room of one's own in that way releases women from these societal and domestic constraints. A room belonging solely to a woman, where she can sit and write without any hindrance, is like a metaphor and is to be taken literally as well. It paints a picture of a woman who is financially secure enough to afford such a room, or the patronage, and also one who is socially independent enough to make her own decisions in her life. Having a room of one's own, in a way, signifies social respectability, as it indicates a woman who values her times and goals enough to give it her time. Unless they are freed from domesticity, and unless they are educated, women with potential will not be able to rise. However, Wolf does not realize that in her time such a room could not be owned by lower-class women. Here, Wolf seemingly becomes paradoxical. The life of a woman in poor poverty is hard, like that of a poor man. It is harder for women since opportunities to earn are lesser and the society demands that they care for their families even if they work. Can a poor woman afford to live in a house where there are many rooms? Can she afford to take time out from her working common jobs and taking care of the family? I think not. Like in the Elizabethan times, she too remains oppressed. Wolf also links the point that such a room can also only be afforded by those who already have a good education, which can enable them to get a well-paying job. It is important to note that Wolf was what we called privileged to get an education in the first place. Not many women of her times could do so, and certainly not the lower class women. Therefore, the class structure of Wolf's society did not allow lower class women to write either. Wolf, however, does not realize that lower-class women have the added constraint of poverty, which makes it near impossible for them to take time out and have the mental space or the required education to write important works of art. Though Wolf is very much like her male writers of the time when it comes to being from the upper classes, it is an interesting thing to note that Wolf came near to the reason why lower-class women do not produce works of art in history. But she does not make the same analysis for her own time. Yet Wolf makes an important point on how societal structures largely determine art, especially art made by by women. And her analysis is sound. Women are oppressed by their sex and patriarchy, poverty as well as societal structure that does not give them a means to train in their art in the first place. And so class structures, economic freedom, all determine what kind of art we see today. Though, of course, with the internet, things have shaken up quite a bit. And here we come to the end of this episode. Be sure to subscribe if you liked it. And in the forthcoming episodes, we will discuss more such classical works of art, but also works of art written by women from the other times, such as the modern times, and also in other languages, of course translate it to English. Thank you.